Hello and welcome to Nerder She Wrote back-to-back podcast on the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dave DeFore, joined, as always, by Seth Partnow. Today, we actually have special guests. Uh, we wanted to discuss the coronavirus, the impact, not just on the NBA, but the world. Through the American Association for the Advancement of Science and their director, Elizabeth Crocker, I was able to get two special guests. Dr. Maria Elena Botazzi is the co-director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development at Baylor College of Medicine. And Dr. Zachary Benny is a sports injury epidemiologist at Emory University. Uh, I'd like to thank you guys for joining the show and helping us navigate these uncharted waters. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you all. Absolutely, Dave and Seth. We can't thank you enough for having us on. I want to start with, I guess, the easiest thing to discuss. How does this virus work? So maybe I can take uh, that question. (laughs) So viruses, uh, many viruses, usually are very uh, transmittable. And the way that it's done when they're transmitted from a human to a human is usually through um, droplets For instance, when we sneeze, uh, and certainly when we're also sneezing and then touching surfaces, uh, you know, then other people can get also contaminated by touching those surfaces that have, um, you know, the droplets that basically were spread during, you know, our sneezing or coughing. How do we protect ourselves and other people from, from transmitting this virus? Well, you know, uh, similarly to how we try to protect ourselves from getting the common cold or certainly the influenza, you know, I think the best practices are, uh, as we've been hearing in the news constantly, is uh, keeping good hygiene, uh, not only washing your hands constantly, uh, wearing, uh, um, you know, these uh, uh, hand sanitizers, certainly covering your face when you are uh, either coughing or sneezing, and uh, attempt not to touch your face if indeed uh, you are uh, touching surfaces that maybe, uh, you know, are, are in the, in, you know, in, in the public, you know, so it's just common sense. I think the challenge has been that uh, with some viruses, and I'm going to even use examples such as measles or even uh, the influenza virus, you know, some viruses are more transmittable than other viruses. So it makes it uh, more spre- easily spreadable than maybe some others. So every virus is very different. And in the situation of the COVID-19, what we're seeing is that it really has a very high potential of transmittability. And that's why we probably have to even double the um, containment or the practices of, of, of being certainly protected, you know, and not, not becoming infected. And I just want to clarify, uh, this is not like a flu. That this is not like a flu. It's a totally different class of virus. Um, You know, a lot of people are trying to make the resemblance even of, you know, the 1918 uh, flu pandemic, right? I mean, but again, but, you know, you can certainly have several analogies because clearly they are uh, all fall into these families of respiratory type of viruses, mostly are also transmitted very similarly again, and it's just a matter of Again, what's the level of transmission? You've heard a lot of, you know, of that rate, right? That you can transmit from a, one person. It can be rapidly transmitted to four, even five people around you. Um, so like measles, it's even higher, trans, more, more transmittable than some of these viruses. Maybe the common cold uh, virus is less transmittable. And then the second, uh, of course, that we keep hearing is, you know, once you are infected, 
how uh, the disease uh, can be divided into being, uh, you know, certainly not as a serious disease versus those that can become quite seriously ill and eventually even hospitalized and leading to death. And that's where it distinguishes who are the target populations that generally are getting more severe disease versus not as severe. That's right. So if you look at, you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty around uh, what we would call the case fatality rate, basically how deadly uh, COVID-19 is, what percent of people who get it and get sick with it uh, will end up dying. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty around it, and it varies a lot by age, uh, where uh, older people are at substantially higher risk uh, than younger people. But when comparing it to the flu, um, the consensus does seem to be that it is at least uh, several times deadlier on average uh, than the flu. So there is good reason to take it seriously and be concerned about it. And uh, not to get into the details too much, but uh, Dr. Batazzi earlier mentioned uh, washing your hands and disinfecting surfaces. Uh, I would just like to emphasize that you can do that with soap and water. Bar soap uh, is completely fine. Uh, antibacterial soap is not necessary. And indeed, we're dealing with a virus here. Um, so really, any soap uh, will be fine because that, that can actually kill the virus. Just the, the fact that it's, that it's soap itself can disrupt part of the virus and end up killing it. Um, so, you know, please don't be afraid to buy and use regular soap. That will work. Uh, that will work quite well. You've talked about how this is a, a, a the COVID-19 is a, is a different uh, disease than, than, than influenza and other viruses we're, we're familiar with. Obviously, there's still a lot we don't know. Is it seasonal? What does it mean if you've had it? Do you develop immunity? Is there a risk of reinfection? Uh, how long are you uh, when and how long are you, uh, if, if you are a carrier or, or have acquired it, uh, when are you uh, uh, contagious? Some of those things are, I think, not broadly known by the public right now. Sure, sure. And I think we need to uh, make sure that, that people understand that coronaviruses are a very large family of viruses. They're not only the SARS or the, even the MERS or even the current uh, SARS-2 that is ca causing the COVID-19. I think the distinction is that, you know, most of the times these coronaviruses that are circulating, and in fact, we probably have been infected by other types of coronaviruses, the distinction is when you have a coronavirus that normally is not um, pathogenic in humans, and most likely it's uh, circulating in several animals, when they jump from being an animal coronavirus and becomes infective into a human, and then more importantly, when you have that jump from the human into another human, is when you, you know, these viruses are not adapted to being in the human, and therefore that is why most likely at first instance are much more serious than many of these other coronaviruses in the family. And so as you have heard, we've actually had three major outbreaks starting in the early 2000s, where every five, six years, we're seeing that some of these coronaviruses that infect animals have been jumping into humans. And then unfortunately, humans then had the ability of uh, infecting other humans. So. The distinction of whether these viruses will eventually become 
uh, community transmittable and eventually be what you call seasonal, which they come and go throughout the year, uh, is still something that we will have to wait and see. Um, Based on the rate that certainly has uh, its ability of infecting people and seeing that now we can't even trace them back to any travel-related type of infection, it seems that there could be a likelihood that uh, it can become community uh, transmitted. Now, from there to then see, is it going to then become that every season we will have corona, this coronavirus appear? We will, of course, have to see, right? You know, maybe now that, you know, the summer is going to start and then w- whether the virus will decline and then we don't know if it's going to come back maybe again during the fall. Um, but that's the kind of studies that we, I believe, need to uh, continuously keep doing to make sure that we get an idea and maybe even predict how the likelihood of transitioning from an outbreak to now being a pandemic and eventually a community transmittable virus, and then that leading into a seasonal type of transmission. Yeah, uh, Dr. Batazzi, please correct me if I uh, say anything wrong here, but uh, I, I absolutely agree that it's still something that you know, as much as it may be unclear to the public, I think it's still uh, unclear to a lot of scientists. Um, there is some reason to believe if COVID-19 follows the patterns of other coronaviruses, it's basically a little bit harder for those viruses to get around uh, when the temperatures get warmer and uh, the humidity goes up uh, a little bit as it tends to in the summer. Uh the force that's kind of counteracting that right now is it's easier for COVID-19 to get around than other coronaviruses because, as Dr. Batazzi said, there's no natural immunity uh, to it in the population right now, at least not widespread uh, that we know of. So those two forces are kind of working and, and we're not sure how they're going to shake out. It's going to be harder weather-wise for the virus to transmit, but is that going to be offset by the fact that it it has a whole lot of people who aren't immune that it can get into? Uh, in terms of immunity and when you're infectious, uh, again, I think we're still trying to hammer down what we know about that. But my understanding is that currently, our best guess is that um, we have not seen a lot of reinfection with COVID-19. Uh, so we're thinking maybe you develop some Uh, immunity to it, but we're certainly not certain about that. And um, in terms of how long you're infectious, uh, the conventional wisdom right now seems to be that you can be infectious even without showing symptoms like uh, difficulty breathing, cough, and fever. Uh, So you can be infectious in the early stages. You are certainly, uh, you can transmit the virus when you are showing symptoms. uh, And once you have recovered, that risk seems to go down, but I don't think we're sure, you know, how fast or, or exactly uh, when you would be considered a really low uh, risk for infecting other people. If we actually pay attention, like I mentioned, there has been three outbreaks, right? The SARS, which I'm going to say SARS-1, uh, the MERS, which is, was the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, and now the second SARS. Uh, there, it's very clear that the two SARS viruses come from a lineage that is very similar, meaning that they're, they're probably cousins or maybe uh, half-brothers or half-sisters, uh, whilst MERS is clearly from a, a little bit more distant lineage. And the reason why this is important is because, in fact, talking about a little bit about the immune, uh, p- the potential of, of building immunity such that if you have already been exposed to 
one SARS, maybe you're a little bit more protected against the next SARS. We've actually already seen this. There are some uh, scientific evidence that if you take people who used who were infected with the SARS-1 virus back in 2003, and if you look at their ability of their serum to neutralize in laboratory experiments, the current SARS that's causing COVID-19, we have seen that it does cross-neutralize. So that means that, uh, you know, if, if the families are close enough, uh, most likely if you're already starting to get exposed and clearly uh, you don't have severe in, uh, disease and you survive, of course, you know, you may be slowly building that immunity. The second very important, uh, um, I guess, uh, similarity uh, uh, between these two SARS viruses is that they also both use the same mode to enter and infect the human cells. So these viruses to infect and cause disease, they of course have to not only enter through your, uh, you know, certainly you know, your contaminated and, and uh, hands that you touch, you know, a, a surface or through those uh, certainly particles, then it goes into eventually your um, respiratory system. But the virus needs to find the lung cells to be able to get inside those cells. And for that to do so, they indeed use their spike protein. And that's why they're, they're called coronaviruses, because the, if you look at their uh, photograph, they have these spikes. And those spikes are actually the mode from as which the virus attaches to the cells in the lungs and binds to a so-called receptor to internalize itself in the cell. And and both use both SARS viruses use the same one, and therefore also we can see that you know we have, for example, in our case we have a vaccine that we had originally developed for the original SARS one virus, that we now have a lot of optimism and even hope that we can repurpose it and even accelerate it because it can potentially even be useful for this new coronavirus. So we need to keep an eye again on. Uh, not only the genetic coding diversity of these viruses, how they behave, even if they cause very different levels of disease and severity, but ultimately they all may be coming from the same lineage and we can learn a lot about how slowly we can build, build these um, potential immune uh, strength amongst the population. We know that you're more susceptible to the, the severe symptoms if, if you're older. Who else would be considered high risk with this. Uh, former smokers, I mean, is obesity something that can contribute to depressed immune system that, that might cause the more severe end of symptoms? Yes, it's kind of interesting, right? Because sometimes you see how viruses really have very different targets of um, high-risk populations. In this case, you're correct, you know, people that are uh, of an older age and also those who do uh, are considered high-risk because they have other type of pre-existing diseases. And indeed, it could be any pre-existing disease, diabetes, obesity, or even uh, previously being a smoker or being immunosuppressed because unfortunately they have some cancer or, you know, they have a, a transplantations are very, it's, it's, it's probably be, be very cautious. But then also, as you know, those that we are very worried about today are our first responders. 
you know, our nurses, our uh, firefighters, those who, if they don't have the correct uh, protection, they are, are in constant uh, contact with uh, these individuals, clearly those who are already at the level of being hospitalized and sometimes even in the intensive care units and or consolidated like we've seen in the case in the nursing home uh, in Seattle where, you know, a lot of the first responders that were either either coming in and out uh, from these facilities. So uh, it's, so it's it's a challenge. We, we know about the struggles here in the, the U.S. To, to get tests out to the public and to test people that aren't showing symptoms. But the Utah Jazz were able to test 58 people within a few hours in spite of this shortage. How, how does something like that happen? I have absolutely no idea, to be completely honest with you, and I, I wouldn't want to speculate on how they on how the jazz specifically were able to get uh, that many tests that quickly. Uh, it is certainly true that right now, you know, we're recording this on. Uh, oh gosh, it's Friday the thirteenth. How about that? Uh, we're we're recording this on Friday, uh, March thirteenth, and uh, you know, it's certainly true that right now we do not have uh, the tests that we need, and we're not testing as many people as other countries uh, here in the U.S. Um, that's for a whole variety of reasons, uh, that I don't think we have time to get into here, but, uh, you know, it's true that, uh, there is a shortage of tests. Uh, some areas are able to test more people than others. I believe, for example, in Washington and Colorado, uh, at least they have a drive-through test center. So they have a little bit of a, a broader, uh, ability to test folks. Um, other places, you know, it's, it's really, really limited, uh, even if you meet, uh, the criteria uh, where we say that you should get a test, uh, you may or may not be able to. So, you know, we've got to triage these tests um, to the people who need the most and uh, and work to ramp up capacity, which I know a lot of private labs are, uh, you know, folks like Quest Diagnostics and a couple of other companies. You've got university labs, uh, the University of Washington and the University of Wisconsin uh, come to mind who are developing uh, rapid tests as well as the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, you know, CDC is also uh, has testing capabilities, uh, local and state public health departments are working on it. So it's a whole bunch of folks who are working on it and, and trying to ramp that up as hard as they can. Yes. And if I can expand a little bit on that, I think that we have to uh, clarify that there are different ways where diagnostics are used, certainly in our in our country. Right. So you have. The diagnostics that, well, first of all, all diagnostics have to be approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration if you're going to use them uh, as, as a real diagnostic tool rather than, for instance, you know, a research uh, tool that sometimes we use in our laboratories. So traditionally, you have the Centers for Disease Control, who is the one who helps um, uh, identify what are the, the, the types of diagnostics that then the public health uh, local state or even federal posts use and how they are distributed in this case I think what we've been seeing and, and, and acknowledging that just going through the route of just waiting for our public health uh, uh, clinics in partnership with the CDC uh, uh, to be able to really address all the needs with regards to diagnostics. The FDA has been working very closely with 
groups such as, as you know, as mentioned, you know, either from commercial uh, parties or even some of our our institutions academically that we may have had already in development uh, diagnostics that we want to use for our research or even clinical trials that they that we can get approval that can be used as a bona fide controlled and uh, with a with high level quality control that can be used as a as an actual community diagnostic. So I think it, it's moving in the right direction. I think they rapidly realize that just fo focusing on uh, the health, the public health uh, system is just not going to break, make it and break it with all the needs. We need to also um, use these public-private uh, partnerships to try to, to advance uh, these diagnostic um, kits. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that's, that's going to probably change the paradigm, as, as you know, as, as you mentioned. You know, we may uh, be able to now not only uh, always rely on that we have to wait for the uh, uh, governmental processes to, to push out these very important diagnostics, but accelerate them by, by working together with some of the academia and private sector. Yeah, and uh, just to tack uh, one thing onto that, um, you know, it's even difficult to know, to quantify exactly how many tests have even been done so far because so many different groups are um, conducting these tests and they're not necessarily all getting centrally reported uh, as efficiently as we might hope. So, you know, best guess right now is I believe there have been around 14,000 or so tests done in the U.S. Uh, it's probably a little bit bigger than that, uh, but, you know, it's it's actually surprisingly hard for us to even get a firm number on that. Yeah. And, and if I also maybe comment on, you know, your, your question about the Utah Jazz, I think more than, more than why they got access to the uh, diagnostic or why not, I think this just uh, highlights how um, certainly the... Um, sports authorities have such a high, um, certainly strict uh, assessment of the players that one good thing is that they very rapidly identified that there was uh, a, a player that most likely was, uh, um, you know, uh, infected. And that therefore allowed for a very rapid mobilization and even taking some of these uh, actions that, of course, now you're seeing that, you know, includes even uh, canceling, you know, the NBA season. I'm glad you. I'm glad you got to canceling the season. Season. Uh, do you think that was the right decision? Do you think it should have happened sooner? I think it was very clearly uh, a wise decision. You can argue about the exact timing, but uh, you know the NBA was the the first league uh, to bring the hammer down and and suspend everything, and I think that that was a smart move. And the reason that that was a smart move is because uh, some of your listeners may have heard the phrase "flatten the curve." Uh, so I want to try and use, it's a little bit of a tortured basketball analogy, but I'll, I'll try to describe what we're trying to do epidemiologically with this virus. Uh, you're in a gym at the Y. You go down to the Y to play some pickup. Uh, you're standing at one end of the court. You've got 30 guys lined up against you on the other end of the court. You have to play against them and do your best to stop them from scoring. They're... Uh, the virus. They're the people who are going to be sick that you're going to have to try to treat. You're going to treat them by trying to play defense and stop them from scoring. If those, if of those 30 guys down there at the other end, they get sent to you one at a time, 
yes, some of them are going to score, but you're playing one-on-one. You're going to successfully defend some of them, right? So you're going to do okay. If they start coming two at a time, it's a little tougher. But two-on-one, you still may stop some of them. They come at you in groups of five. You know, even if it was going to be 30 guys either way, it's a huge difference if you get to face them one at a time or if it's five-on-one, five-on-one, five-on-one for six times. You're going to quickly get completely overwhelmed, and they're going to score on you just, I mean, as fast as you can snap your fingers, right? They're going to keep scoring. That's dangerous. We want to stop that really fast scoring. We want to stop you, the healthcare system, from being overwhelmed. We want to give you a chance to play one-on-one defense. That's what we're trying to do by flattening the curve. The phrase flattening the curve has has sort of entered the lexicon. I'm not sure that the average person totally understands how kind of reducing large scale interactions does that. It's uh, there's been some confusion about like, oh, why why events only over a thousand or only over a hundred? Why does the number matter? Can you explain from a medical and epidemiological standpoint why the risks are just not just the number of people? but almost uh, and exponentially as the number of people grows for any of these gatherings. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, right? Because you're right. I mean, ideally, the super dra- draconian uh, solution would be each of us just stay enclosed in our little room and not talk and see anybody, right? Uh, but, of course, we are, we are not going to be able to do it at that level. So uh, the number of people, like even here in our institution, you know, have meetings that have to be, le- you know, at least less than uh, 15, 20 people. You know, I think it's really just a matter of being aware of who you've been with and how do you limit the exposure and how ultimately you can potentially even trace back, right? If you, again, go into a an NBA game and you have thousands of people, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to even trace back, you know, how uh, how do you not only go where the original uh, transmission came from or how do you then follow the transmission afterwards? So it's just, you know, try to limit this concept of, you know, being in direct uh, contact with other people. But of course, it's, it's almost impossible to, to come to the point where you have absolutely no contact with people. So you just have to, you know, use the common sense of numbers where you feel that you can have a little bit more manageable control uh, and uh, attempt to limit certainly the exposure. That's right. And so just imagine, you know, Imagine you go out to a restaurant and there are maybe 20 or 30 people in the restaurant. So there's some risk that one of them is sick. And even if they are sick, they might spread it to a few people in the restaurant. Right. Okay, not great. Right. Definitely not ideal. Not what we want. But that is on a completely different scale than an NBA game with 15 to 20,000 people. You might have. A hundred people who come to the game who are sick, they may not know it, they may be asymptomatic, but they may be spreading the virus. If they're spread out around the arena, packed into those tiny seats, they get smaller every year, right? Uh, You are, you know, they could spread it to 20 or 30 people on their own, theoretically, if they're uh, coughing and depending on the surfaces that they touch and how religious they are about washing their hands. And then very, very suddenly, when you have a situation like that, where you had more sick people congregate to start with, and they're in tighter quarters indoors, able to spread that virus to more people, that's a recipe for disaster. And that's how it 
things uh, can get out of control very, very quickly. So that's the sort of thing that that we're trying to avoid by canceling larger events. And, you know, basically the the larger the event, the higher the risk. So the more that you can stay away from those, the better. I think that gets back to your your analogy pretty perfectly of, of okay, you've got to play defense 30 times. It's it's more than 30 times as hard to, to if you had to defend all 30 at once. Exactly. Um, if you, uh, and, and that's the so it's it's the number of people required to have a number of individual person to person contacts. Uh, the smaller the group, the more the more gatherings and the more groups it takes to reach a certain number of contacts. Packing them all in at once is is a way to if you're trying to maximize the number of ways. I mean, that's you know, it's that's why con- you conferences are for networking is you can see as many as people as possible quickly and and. That's in in most standpoint situations. That's a good thing. Uh, in in this kind of a situation, that kind of gets turned on its head, and it becomes a very bad. Is that a bad way of putting it? No, no. I think that's a good way of putting it. And just to expand a little bit on what I mean uh, by playing defense, we only have limited hospital beds. We only have limited ICU beds. We only have limited ventilators. And if you are unfortunate enough to get sick with COVID nineteen and experience very severe symptoms, very severe pneumonia, um, we've only got so many personnel and places where we can treat you. The more that we can spread out that number of people, uh, the more of them that we can save. If we have to play against all 30 people right at the same time, or even three groups of 10, our ability to even treat you is going to get overwhelmed, right? So even if you could have survived If you had come in when there was an ICU bed, if you get sick and you come in and there's no ICU bed, there's only so much we can do. So that's what we mean by flatten the curve. We're trying to reduce the burden on our hospitals, our healthcare workers, our ICUs. Yes. And sorry. No, I was going to say that therefore that is one of the reasons why, uh, even though it may not necessarily be a short term solution, development of vaccines is going to eventually do that, right? I mean, we would like to then have, even if it's vaccines that are not going to be able to be used immediately, but eventually could help reduce this burden of preventing infections that are going to lead to to huge severe disease and just keep people maybe uh, at the level of uh, a common cold and, and the fact that they may just be able to manage the, the, the infection by staying at home and uh, with other traditional methods of of, of uh, uh, clinical management rather than going to the point where they have to be hospitalized. The same goes with, uh, uh, you know, that development of new potential therapeutics that would at least minimize. I, I, I'm, I do not believe that we will ever have like a perfect uh, um, preventive method uh, because, as you know, with viruses, even if today we're trying to rush into a COVID-19 uh, um, vaccine, maybe the next outbreak will be with a SARS-3 version, right? Uh, so, but that said, vaccines like we do every year to develop vaccines for flu that change based on how these viruses change every season, uh, you know, provide very, very uh, important uh, protection, even if it's a partial protection. The key is, reduce deaths and practically have no deaths uh, and reduce as much as possible what we call the burden of the disease such that it doesn't go to the point where we uh, really have to add 
to our health system and reduce the healthcare costs by having people going into not only uh, inpatient hospitalizations and most importantly, ICU or even um, uh, uh, leading to, uh, to death. Uh, given the current modeling, which doesn't seem great, it's based on current circumstances. And, you know, we're just getting to the point where we're doing these social distancing measures, we're canceling large events. So the modeling right now is probably worse than it will look in a month. Uh, given that, um, the NBA plans to reassess whether they will restart the season or, or continue play in a month. Do you guys see that as a a reasonable amount of time or, or is this going to be a longer term process? I wish I could look into the future and say that, um, you know, my gut reaction to that is there's so much uncertainty in what we still know. Uh, and I hope that there's still room to, to bend and, and flatten that curve um, that I think it's okay to say that you're going to reassess in a month. Um, I don't think you can go in with the attitude that, you know, this is going to be a month and it's done and it's going to be contained and the season's going to continue. Um, I don't think we know. I, I think it's possible, but it's also possible that the things get a whole lot worse and, and it doesn't look a whole lot better in a month. I think we have to wait and see. So as long as the NBA is going in uh, with that attitude, um, I think it's okay. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, I hope that this is a, a good lesson learned, meaning uh, we have to rapidly, of course, uh, continue to deploy the diagnostics. We have to rapidly continue to ensure that all the resources are needed for all our uh, public health officials, uh, hospitals, uh, certainly first responders, that we can treat and uh, uh, keep a good handle of those who are seriously ill. But that when hopefully, if indeed this uh, outbreak, uh, now pandemic, uh, sort of disappears as the summer starts uh, coming in, that we just, we don't forget, right? And then we, like happened during SARS and during MERS, that we uh, uh, did not have the impetus of continuing the research or continuing investigating and having suitable te technology ready and trumping the, dis the, the development because other priorities will, of course, arise. And we cannot stop uh, continuously looking for these interventions. And I think that is what we've been doing constantly. We have, oh my God, a ba major crisis. We, everybody jumps and tries to put all not only funds, but you know, uh, advancements in, in science to bring a discovery or a solution. Then rapidly the outbreak disappears and then that um, support di uh, dissipates. And for instance, ourselves, we were left kind of like halfway we had a nice vaccine that we hoped that, you know, we would have potentially worked, but we were unable to get funding after the SARS uh, outbreak disappeared. And short we knew, 10 years later, we're having it again. So I think it's uh, hopefully we will be more proactive and less reactive uh, 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 towards these situations. Oh, gosh, I couldn't agree more. You know, that's kind of the curse of public health, right, is you're always trying to convince people to prevent. And that's really hard because you have to take a leap of faith based on what you're saying and and it requires a sustained commitment of uh funding and resources and attention uh when it doesn't seem like those things are necessary and and we have to take the long view on that and uh i i just couldn't agree more as we wrap this up 
who should we be listening to? Who should we be following on Twitter? Who should we be reading? Education seems like it's extremely important here. And needless to say, it's lacking in the public consciousness. So please point us in the right direction. Yeah, I think a couple of outlets that I've seen that have done uh, generally good reporting on this really thorough stuff has been uh, Vox, uh, The Atlantic, and ProPublica uh, have all done really good work. Uh, in terms of Twitter, I definitely have a couple followers I would recommend. Uh, Carl Bergstrom is one, uh, and the other one uh, is Mark Lipsitch. That's L-I-P-S-I-T-C-H. Uh, he's a Harvard epidemiologist, and if you just follow his feed, you'll you'll be kept uh, pretty up to date. And from my perspective, uh, of course, uh, these uh, media outlets, as as, uh, as you just heard. <laughs> They rely on ensuring that their data is based on scientific and, and, and with hardcore evidence. There's a lot of good webinars and certainly supporting information coming out, likely from all the uh, academic institutions, as well as medical uh, centers and hospitals, of certainly how in your own uh, community, region, city, you know, like in, indeed what to do if you think that you have, uh, you know, uh, infected by the coronavirus. So look at your closest uh, hospital or clinic or even a, a medical school, because I'm sure they will have uh, very good information. You know, granted, you know, our public health uh, offices uh, have a timely information. I usually rely a lot also on the World Health Organization because they also provide a very good global perspective. Um, and if I just may add, you know, to the Twitter uh, followers, you know, I work hand in hand with Dr. Peter Hotes, who has been certainly also in the media and trying to help all these media outlets uh, provide the accurate and, and most scientific story. So I also suggest you can add him uh, in your list. It's Hotez, H-O-T-E-Z. I love all those recommendations. Those are fantastic. Last question, if I can. Um, what, uh, you know, what what should people do in their in their day to day lives now? I think that's um, this is this is snuck up on on a lot of people, um, and I think there's a lot of people trying to figure out what what should I do? Uh, how do I how do I go about my day to day? What precautions can I take? And why is what I do important not just for myself and my family, but for the broader community? Well, from my perspective. Uh, Always try to use the common sense and don't enter into this uh, panic uh, mode. Uh, we will go. We will get over this, right? I mean, we, you know, are, uh, humans are quite resilient. Hopefully, we will learn uh, from this. Uh, and um, I think it's just to be a little bit more open-minded that you know the actions that we take on a daily basis, you know, clearly have. Uh, a community repercussion. So maybe this also will uh, um, open more the dialogue amongst ourselves in our own communities. Uh, uh, discuss, you know, what are the things that are working? Where where are the gaps that we see? How we can uh, create better uh, government and private sector and even academic sector links and partnerships uh, so that we can be a little bit more um, 
I guess, uh, collaborative, uh, including, you know, entering into, as you know, this political uh, uh, next phase that we're going to be hopefully soon electing uh, our new uh, commanders in chief, that we use this also to uh, open more the dialogues, you know, so that we can have our voices and that everybody can hear their voice and, and be able to, to comment. Yeah, and I think just keeping in mind that um, it's not about you, right? Uh, I'm 33-year-old, healthy man. If I get it, and maybe I already did because I had a, a chest cold a few weeks back, didn't get tested, don't know if it was uh, COVID-19 or not. Uh, but if you do get it and you're like me, odds are you are probably going to be okay, or at a minimum, you're not going to die. It's not about you. It's about my dad, right, who's 65, um, has a little bit of cardiovascular trouble. Uh, you know, I don't want to go to him and get him sick because he has a much higher risk. So we've all got to work together as a society. We've got to pull together and do everything we can to keep ourselves and our loved ones uh, safe. And, uh, you know, even if I get it and don't die, uh, there's still the possibility of, uh, you know, longer term damage that I think we're still trying to figure out, particularly with uh, with this new virus, where obviously we just don't have that kind of data yet. But, um, you know, you could it's possible that you could see even long term lung long term lung damage in somebody like Rudy Gobert or, uh, you know, other elite athletes. We just don't know. So, you know, don't look at the the super low mortality rates in your group and go, oh, you know, it's really not going to be that bad. I can get it. I mean, you might still get it, but everything that you can do to reduce your risk, um, specifically not going to or holding large gatherings, uh, making sure that you wash your hands and uh, isolating yourself uh, completely uh, if you're sick. Uh, those are those are the main things that I would really like to get across to people to do. Dr. Benny, Dr. Botazzi, thank you so much for making the time to come on the show and help talk us through it. Um, I'd also like to give a special thanks to my friend, Dr. John Drazen, who actually helped set this up, and the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and in particular, Elizabeth Crocker, who was excellent to work with. Uh, follow the American Association for the Advancement of Science on Twitter, at AAAS. And we will link some articles in our show notes, and I will uh, obviously include the Twitter handles for Dr. Botazzi and Dr. Benny. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you. Thank you.